You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. It is my special privilege today to introduce our guest. It is uh, Beth Seidenberg, who is a partner at Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Byers. She's been there since 2005. And before that, she was the uh, chief medical officer at Amgen, which is the world's largest biotechnology company. She also has a lot of experience in other biotech companies. Uh, but as a student, she studied initially anthropology and biology and then went to medical school. She's going to tell us some really interesting stories about how to get technology out of the lab and into the world. Thanks, Beth. Tina. Well, thank you, everybody, and uh, uh, it's great to be here. And I understand I'm the finale for this class. <laughs> so I have a, a lot of um, uh, opportunity here to maybe tie things together for you. I have a prepared set of uh, slides and, and a talk that I'd like to review with you, which includes a case study about um, a company we started with technology here out of Stanford in 2007. And um, before I get started and go over my prepared remarks, what I'd like to do is ask whoever wants to volunteer any um, topics that you want me to cover. I'm a venture capitalist. I've been in operating roles in biotech companies, and there may be things that you want to hear about today that I don't have prepared remarks for, and I'd love to make sure I covered them. Yes? I'd be interested in hearing about your thoughts on anthropology and venture capital. Absolutely. It certainly is. Great question. Great. Others, yeah. Role of the board of directors. Great. Okay. I'm just going to write these down so I don't forget. Okay. The interplay between startups and larger players in biotech. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The interplay between biotech and what we call fintech. Yeah. We are in a big way, and I cross over a bunch. So great. Other. Questions, topics. Yes. What's it like to have Al Gore as a partner? Okay. <laughs> we get asked that a few times. <laughs> okay. Others. Yeah. Affordability of healthcare. What's that? Affordability. Affordability. Yeah. That's a key topic. Okay. Uh, others. Yeah. Nutrition In the back. Genetics. What's that? Nutrition and genetics. Got it. Okay. These are great topics. Now you give me ideas for my next set of talks. <laughs> okay. Other. Yeah. One more on a management style. What do you look for for team formation? That's good. Okay. We're going to cover. You'll hear a lot about that in the case study, which would be interesting. Other questions, topics? Okay. Well, let's... Um, Jump in. Some of these I will cover in my remarks, and some of the topics will just sort of stop, and then I'll take the questions, and I'm sure we'll have others. So before I start, um, 
Of course, from Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield and Byers, I have to show you the latest new technology. <laughs> and so uh, this talk has been prepared in uh, technology. It's a new company that we're incubating over at Kleiner Perkins called Cool Iris. It's a whole bunch of students out of Stanford who are working in our incubation, which is a building right next door to where our primary offices are, with a little bridge walk across. And they're building a technology that allows for interaction on the web in kind of a really cool way. It's real 3D, and apparently there are, what my partner Randy Komisar tells me, millions of um, people using this application, and they're finding it very useful for making their YouTube videos. So what do I know? I'm in the life science <laughs> practice. But it's kind of cool, I thought. So we're going to talk about commercializing innovation. And since this is a course on entrepreneurship, and this is what we do for a living, is to find great innovation and bring it into what we hope. Every time we start a company, our hope is that it's going to be a large company that creates a big transformation in an industry and creates lots of jobs and returns money to our limited partners. So, um, and I'm hopefully going to give you a perspective on the formula that has been in practice at Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield and Byers for 35 years. And people often ask, you know, how is this possible with the only of the four um, original partners, Brooke Byers is still practicing very actively, but the other three are gone and how do we pass the baton and how do we bring people like me who came out of an operating role into this firm and really do the same thing and successfully hopefully over and over again. So this is a snapshot of Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield and Byers. And basically, our job as venture capitalists are to provide service to entrepreneurs and to help them build great businesses. And so at one point, actually two years ago, when we were raising KPCB 12 and our pandemic preparedness fund, um, John Doerr told our limited partners that we were changing our profession from venture capital to relationship capital, because that's what we do. And we've had lots of relationships. Um, we have formed over 475 companies. Many of them are public companies, names that you'll recognize, in lots of different areas. And that's one of the um, very interesting parts of uh, the firm is that we, right now, are working in three main sectors, biotechnology, information technology, and, com and uh, consumer products, and green tech or clean tech. We call it green technology. And we, we split our funds about a third, a third, a third across those three sectors. And um, as you can see, we have created hundreds of thousands of jobs We've returned billions of dollars of revenue to our limited partners and also to society. And collectively, the market capitalization of companies that we've backed is over $760 billion. So good track record. Now I'm going to tell you how we do it, which is the interesting part. Oops, that didn't work. OK, see, new toys. This is what happens. OK. This is the key takeaway, and it may sound simple, 
but this is the heart of what we try and do. Every time we start a new company or we see a new technology that may have an application, we look at these five key factors. And the words on this page are very purposefully chosen. The most important thing is leadership. And I know that during the course of this program, you've heard a lot about leadership. You've met, the last class was with John Mello from Amaris, one of our startup green technology companies. And he's an example of a real A-plus type leader who's passionate about the company that he's leading. We look at markets very, very carefully. And the criteria on the slide are things that are must-haves for a Kleinerback company. There are many markets that aren't as large, aren't as transformational, um, and they're important, but we don't back them because we will invest in fewer companies, but every time we invest, we're putting a lot of time and energy into those investments, and we can handle, as an individual partner, a capacity of anywhere between 9 to 11, maybe 12. 12 companies is really a lot, and you're working 24-7. It's not what a lot of us want to be doing. So, um, so we really look for companies that are serving large markets. We're willing to take a lot of technical technology risks. And a lot of people are surprised when they hear that they would think that venture capital would be low technology risk and build markets. But we think about it in the other way. We want to look at big markets. We may be creating markets, but they have to be markets that are ripe and ready for creation. And we'll take a lot of technical risk, and we do all the time. Reasonable financings. We're going to talk about sort of the structure of a financing for a startup company. And one of the things that we found is that a lot of people who come in, entrepreneurs with a business plan, it's sort of a badge of honor for them to have a high valuation. Their company is worth you know, $100 million, and that feels like that's a great thing to have. You don't want to have a value of your company that's ahead of what your products actually deserve to be valued at. And that's a learning that people go through over and over again. But we work really hard. And if we can't get an entrepreneur to be comfortable with the valuation that we're proposing, it's probably not the right entrepreneur for us to work with. So we'll t we'll sh I'll show you specific examples. A sense of urgency is critical. There's always competition. First matters. Being the best matters. And wanting to get there and being able to drive a team to know that your part product, again, there's a market need and there's a burning desire for that product out there, the entrepreneurs and the company has to have a sense of urgency to drive that forward. And then last and probably almost as important, again, I'm not rank ordering these, but specifically calling out, that we look for people who are missionaries and not mercenaries. So one of our, my partners, Randy Commissar, who teaches um, an entrepreneur course here at Stanford, wrote a book called The Monk and the Riddle. And he talked about an entrepreneur who was really a mercenary. And he was kept driving for the big dollars, the big return. 
he kept striving for it and it was like sand in his in his hands he couldn't grasp it because it's not about figuring out oh well I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna make a lot of money it's much more about having a passion knowing there's a market getting the best people around it and driving that forward Okay, so I'm going to focus my comments um, on sort of the pieces, the elements that get put together in a startup company around biotechnology, which includes, or life sciences, I should say, um, biotech and devices. And I know a number of you are engineers, and so you may be thinking more on um, uh, computer or mechanical type of applications. It's all, at the end of the day, very similar, um, but just so you can extrapolate to your own um, common uh, language here. So as I mentioned earlier, we look first at the technical risks. We take risk. It's okay. We have to have intellectual property around what we're doing, particularly in the life science area and in the clean tech, green tech area. In the IT consumer products, it's all about first to market, the viral effect, not viruses that infect the body, which I always think about when I first heard that. I was like, what are you talking about, viruses? And, but anyway, the viral effect on the computer and, and really getting there quickly. But in life science, green tech, you have to be able to protect your idea because the cycle time from starting a project to getting a product to market can be as long as 10 years and can cost in the range of 50 to 100 to $200 million, maybe more, to get there. So by the time you get to market, you have to be able to protect that property, and you have to really have a unique space. Um, market risk, we talked about unmet. Here it's clinical needs. When you think about a market in the life science area, it's all about the patient. It's all about thinking about what can we do to better patients' lives, and there are a lot of examples that we can talk about and some that you asked about, nutrition, genetics, personalized medicine, all of these things at the end of the day are really to serve patients, and that's the market. And then management we talked about, and A-teams, and I'll emphasize that over and over again. So we use the terminology, the term frequently ecosystem. And the value that you all have training at Stanford and being in the Silicon Valley in the Bay Area is enormous. I mean, it is an environment unlike any other environment um, I've ever seen and anybody's ever created. There's certainly an ecosystem in Boston. There's a little bit of one in San Diego. But in the United States, that's really, those are the hubs for innovation. And in Europe, I haven't been able to pull this together. China, we're doing a lot of work there. They're starting. India, not really. I mean, it's really unique. And what makes this unique is culture. So the fact that this course exists is a perfect example of the culture of entrepreneurship. Um, you have to have technical expertise in your area. One of the major takeaways for you is if you're thinking about going into a startup company, starting a company on your own, working with somebody, Go work in your sweet spot. Work what you, in an area that you understand and you know. Eventually, you can branch out. But when you start, work in an area where you have expertise. So a lot of talent. There's a lot of capital. And um, that all comes together very nicely in this ecosystem. 
So I'm going to show you, I, I thought about changing this talk. I gave this talk, um, a similar talk down in Southern California that um, is trying to build an ecosystem like Silicon Valley. And um, they're not there, and they're having their key elements that are missing. And so I'm going to show you a slide on Northern California and a slide on Southern California. But imagine that you were in Kentucky or you were in um, New York City tries to do this. And it's just not the same. And you'll get it when I show you the examples. So um, talent and scale, the slide speaks for itself. What, what is it, why are the companies so important? Companies are important because they're training grounds. That's where you learn the basic elements of how to operate and how to put pieces together. And we get a lot of talent from the bigger companies that are formed here in Silicon Valley. If you look at Southern California, so when I put this together, I struggled to find a set of companies that would really have a talent pool that we could draw from. It's different, right? I mean, you have a biotech, you've got you know, a couple of them. You've got um, computer tech, and then you've got some service companies. Very different formula. If you look at um, research talent, I mean, the cluster of universities around the Bay Area is just remarkable. And this is what allows Boston to start with a, uh, a cluster of very, very good startup companies, MIT, Harvard, MGH, Broad Institute, very, very good um, set. And then in San Diego, but you have basically three institutions. <coughs> and so it's not quite as, there's not as much depth. And then, <coughs> excuse me, Southern California actually has a set of very, very good institutions. But what we find, and we've done a number of startups, <coughs> excuse me, recently out of UC Santa Barbara and Caltech, is that we find the technology and then we move it. We move the technology with maybe with a founder to the ecosystem up here or sometimes in San Diego. Because if you don't have the talent and the management pool and the banks and the lawyers and everybody else around you, it's very hard to start companies. <clears throat> so capital, you know, drive up and down Sand Hill Road. There's a ton of capital. It's not a problem. But the other part that's really important are um, organizations like the Stanford Biodesign Program. We back a lot of companies and ideas, and people are trained to know how to do, how to start companies. Um, IDEO is a great kind of incubation center. I know you heard from um, uh, Mir about starting a device company. His incubator has just spit out multiple companies. Many places do not have that kind of infrastructure. And then serial entrepreneurs, people who can tell you what it's like and how to do it and mentor and guide you. Very, very important components. And in Southern California, again, there's all these questions. There's, there's one VC firm. There are a couple of small firms. Nobody really has put a foothold or headquarters down there. There are some law firms in LA, but they serve the entertainment business. It's a little bit different when you're supporting starting a film versus you know, biotech or device company, although the risks are very similar. Um, but there are no incubators. And then the serial entrepreneurs have kind of done one company. You know, It's not multiple companies, so very, very different 
set of um, opportunities. And so this is kind of the how slide on, you know, how do the pieces come together? And if you look at the slide, it's you got to start with an idea. What, what we find um, not infrequently is somebody will come in and they have fantastic whiz-bang technology, but they don't know where to apply it. And if you have technology that you can't figure out what market it serves or how to apply it, very, very difficult to get traction and then actually build a sustainable entity around that. Um, team, we talked about serving the market. In this example, it's all about the patients. Um, there's a lot of components that go into, I'm going to give an example on a medical device company and sort of funding and how this works, but the bottom line is the idea has to be created somewhere. Usually, I would say 90% of what we do come out of universities. It's not coming out of, you know, we have some out of incubation centers, but a lot of it's out of universities. So you need to know the tech transfer process, organization, sort of how do you get an idea and move it outside of the university. Um, you've got to know how to put a financing together or have somebody who can help you. And we'll talk about angels, friends and family versus VC on the next slide. So a financing might look something like this. And you probably have seen this or something around this um, type of scheme. But um, as I mentioned earlier, this is a device company. Device companies typically take less money than biotech life science to get to market, where you'll spend in a biotech company, you know, the big number out there is a billion dollars to develop a new therapeutic. You can do it for less, but this is about $80 million, costs sometimes 100 or 200 for a device. Um, don't go out for venture money too soon. Try and get your ideas formulated. And the good news about Silicon Valley, which I didn't put on the slide, is there are a lot of angels. And angels are friends family members, there are funds that are literally startup funds that will give you anywhere from you know, $50,000 to sometimes up to a million dollars to help bring your idea forward, help you write a business plan so that you can go to a venture capitalist and then get in the range of three to seven million dollars. And on the reasonable financing side, slide, sorry, perspective, if you look at this slide, you see that it's an incremental build of money that comes in, series A, B, C, D, and E, and then IPO. You don't have to have that. You can do a series A and then go IPO. I mean, it really varies. But the bottom line here is that when you see companies announced that are receiving 50 to $100 million for their first financing, that should be just a red flag. Because you can't spend money effectively that fast. Well, you can, but the people who gave you that money may not be thrilled with that result. So having milestones, having a set of expectations that say, okay, my seed round, my incubation is going to be to build a business plan, put a team together, and then go out and get money. And Series A, let's say in a device, is to get the design specs around the device. I could do that for a few million dollars. And then Series B may be to get the first clinical experience around that device or to get a regulatory approval for the device. 
Series C may be early launch or later stage clinicals. So incremental build around clear milestones is very, very important in building a successful company. You guys can stop me if you have questions. Yeah, Tom. <laughs> um, first in human. Sorry, <laughs> I should have known. What else did I use acronyms? IPO, everybody knows that, right? Anything else? Yeah, questions before, and then I'll go into the case study. Um, when you were working at, at Amgen, what would a timeline be? Would it be any different, and would the amount of capital that you raise be any different if you're doing some of this innovation inside a large company, either a medical device company or a, uh, or a big pharma or whatever? So I have an interesting perspective now um, because when I uh, started in the industry, I always prided myself in the organization on being fast, nimble, efficient. Um, since leaving corporate America, I feel like I was slow, inefficient, wasted money. <laughs> um, and that is because the, the structure you know, is set up in a way that you almost have to. So um, startup companies definitely are more nimble. They definitely can do more with less, no question about it, and, um, and, and faster. And this example? Very well, if this is what might be reasonable for a device company that's a startup. You would spend um, double this in a large company, and I'll tell you why. You would have more people working on the project. A lot of what drives your costs are people. You would um, clearly have more um, design work, fine-tuning, tinkering, perfection kind of thing. Um, and you would have backup on backup on backup. So a lot of times in startups, you like to, this has been a learning for me and hard, because you know, my instincts are to have more you know, contingency planning, and you can't do that in a startup. Yeah, and so then that's where the nimbleness comes in because, you know, every single company goes to the ICU at least once, and you know is in the emergency room about once a year. <laughs> my my physician, you know, analogy. I mean, and it just it's the reality, and so you have to be nimble. You have to deal with those you know crisis times and know how to work around them. Yeah, another question. So um, that's a great question. So at the beginning, it, when you have angels and founders, the founders own most of the company, and the angels will put a little bit of money in. So you know, let's say founders have 80% of the company, and the angels will have 20%. When you get venture capital money into a company, um, we will own a large majority, you know, anywhere from... 20% to 60%. And so it's, you know, the money that we put in is, is really where we get our ownership. And, you know, it's, it's the risk capital equation. Um, but the way, going back to my comment about reasonable financings, if you look at sort of the incremental build, if you're putting just enough money in at the right time and your valuation goes up, you're not going to get diluted as much on ownership. 
right? So for the founders, they want to get more ownership, or they want to keep, maintain their ownership. The only way they're going to do that is to increase their, the valuation of the company. So we're all motivated to do the same thing. Any other questions about this? Okay, so those are the basics. Now let's give a case study, which is um, a, well, this thing doesn't build, so that's, the, that's my complaint. I'm gonna talk to Randy Komisar about this cool iris thing, because I like to do this in a build way, but we'll do it as a sort of a whole slide. So, okay, so here's a startup out of um, Stanford, out of the labs, and this is the process that we went through to start this company. And it started in 2006 um, with really, um, we call this lab crawling, um, which is what it sounds like. So people like me and other partners spend time here. And we meet with scientists and we go into labs and we ask them what's cool, what are you working on, what's interesting. And we don't go in with sort of random walks, we have, um, it would be really hard to then figure out what we do. We actually put a strategy together every year, and at the end of the year, we all get together and we say, here's the direction, here are the areas we're interested in, and then we try and find the best technology in those areas. So um, I have a, an interest in um, oncology and cancer development. I believe very strongly that we're entering a, um, an era with a lot of the technology that's now available both in the genomics and proteomics and being able to, to personalize, understand what's driving one patient to have a certain type of tumor and what's the best therapy, that I took a, a real interest in this space. And so I've been I had been talking to people about, okay, what do we do in cancer? What's hot? And you know, one way to do it is this, right? Come and talk to people like you who are smart and have ideas, and then you'll share your ideas with us, which is a great thing. The other thing is, um, keeping your ears open for ideas. So we were having a meeting with two professors from Stanford um, about a totally different topic. It was actually about a surgical device. And one of the professors um, kind of walking down the hall said, what do you think about cancer metastasis? And I said, it's awful. I hope you don't have, you don't have metastatic cancer because you're going to die. 90% of patients who die from cancer die from metastatic disease, not the primary tumor. And all of the therapies that we use today go after treating the primary tumor. We're obsessed with you know, looking at the tumor in your kidney or your lung or wherever and focusing on receptors and blood vessels and all of that, but we're not dealing with the metastatic disease. So I said, great, really interesting. What are you thinking? And um, he said, and he handed me a paper that had been just published in Nature that was really interesting. And it had all the hot buttons that I was looking for. Big idea, great market. <clears throat> he had animal data, biological profiling in patients, and <coughs> clear um, mechanism of action of, around a target that was identified. So I looked at this and I said, this is really interesting. The sci I said, just bring the scientists in. He said, he's not a businessman. He doesn't have any information. He's, you know, just, are you okay with this? I said, great, it's okay. We can write a business plan. So um, the scientists came in and literally just went through the science in the paper plus you know, additional work that he had. And, um, and I listened and spent a few hours and we started writing on the whiteboard you know, ideas about, well, 
you know, how else can you test this? What tumors? You know, lots and lots of questions about the technology. And became very, very interested in the technology. Um, market assessment, it was easy. I mean, 90% of patients with cancer die from metastatic disease. What if you could slow down, stop, or prevent cancer metastasis? Straightforward, right? I mean, Avastin, which gives two months additional survival, is uh, over a $2 billion drug per year. So we know that there, this would sell if we can do this. And so we um, said, okay, this looks really interesting. I'll, I'll write the business plan and um, you know, work with the scientists and just try and understand the technology. And in December 2006, went to my partners, said, I have this great idea, great company, here's the business plan. And um, you know, the company will be presenting before the holidays. And it was, I think, like December 20th. And I got a call from the patent attorney because one of the key things that I mentioned is intellectual property protecting your idea. And it was one of those, Houston, we have a problem, a serious problem. Um, the target that this scientist had identified had also been identified in a tangential way in a patent by a large company. And then we found this small research group in Israel who was also working on this, and they had filed a patent. And the Stanford professor had filed a provisional patent, and we had two weeks, no, sorry, it was four weeks before the patent was ready to publish. And once the patent publishes, it's very hard to update it and really you know, make significant changes. And so we said, okay, well, what are we going to do? And it was right before the Christmas holidays. And this is where passion and commitment and real um, focus of the entrepreneur comes into play. And the lawyer, who was unbelievable, and unfortunately his wife has subsequently passed away from metastatic cancer, but he saw this idea and was just absolutely passionate and said, I'll work over the Christmas holiday. I'm going to help you do this and fix the patent. Called the patent office and said, um, can you hold off and, on publishing this patent, please? If you do, that would be, we'd be very grateful and it'll give us some time. And they agreed, which was like amazing. So that was the first great phone call where they said, oh, yes, good. Um, and we went to work and all of us, and I was there and the people in the lab and Everybody started writing and you know, putting together documentation because it was all around, part of it was a sequence question around the target and you know, how unique was the sequence of the, invest, the uh, professor at Stanford versus what was published in these other two patents. And after pouring through lots of literature, data in his lab, we found that he had identified a unique se sequence and we could work around this with a lot of additions to the patent. And the lawyer in this case not only was passionate from a personal level, um, but didn't charge us and basically said, if this works and you fund the company, let me invest. And you know, I'd love to be your patent attorney moving forward, but if not, that's okay. So that's the ecosystem. It's remarkable. I mean, it's amazing what went on. And so we worked very, very hard and submitted new patents, and um, I called a friend of mine from Amgen 
who um, is Israeli and he ran manufacturing at Immunex first and then at Amgen, lives in Israel now. And I said, could you please go to this university in Israel and um, talk to them? You know, you know me. Can you, you know, stand behind me and try and get this patent for us? Because the key was fixing the Stanford patent, realizing that the big, large company was not as big of a risk. And so we were willing, again, we take risks. That's what we do. Was willing to take that risk and, and saying that if I can get my friend in Israel to go and convince this university to talk to us, I'm confident we can get this done. So all about risk, but all about, you know, passion and vision and, and we ended up getting the patent in Israel. We ended up fixing the Stanford patents. We ended up um, writing our own new patents very, very quickly and went to work. And so the next thing was, what do we need? We have an idea. We have intellectual property, or at least enough to get started. We have a um, passionate founder. Now we need a leader. because. I wasn't going to be able to do this full time. I wrote the business plan. That part I can do. But then it's like, OK, now we need somebody to hire scientists and get lab space and all of that. So we found a great CEO, somebody who this was an antibody-based technology, who worked in um, biotech before, had successfully um, uh, worked for a company that went public, successfully led a company that was sold to Amgen, it turns out. So the network works here too, guys. Um, that's really important. And he was absolutely fantastic and passionate, too. And um, the story behind him taking the job, because everybody wanted to hire him. He had just sold his company to Amgen for um, $450 million, and it was a three-year-old company. And so a lot of venture capitalists made money, and it was a really good idea in a company. And so everybody wanted to hire this guy. He had the golden touch. Well, so our question was, how do we recruit him? Big market, all this. I mean, you know, everybody got excited. And I spent hours with him. And he came into my office one day, and he said, I'm taking the job. And I was like, OK, I thought I was still negotiating with you. He said, I'm taking the job. I had a dream last night. And his dream was about his friend Max. And Max had died of breast cancer. And he had the passion and said, I'm going to do this because I really believe. And she told me to do it. And I mean, these are, these are true stories. I'm not making this up. But this is what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And so he joined the company, and I was thrilled, and everything's going along. But then um, he and the founder were in love at first, and they fell out of love real fast. <laughs> and why did they fall out of love? Well, you got two people who were passionate about an idea, one guy who de de developed it and worked it away in the laboratory, and another guy who was a business person and a scientist who basically said, but we're going to do it my way. I'm the CEO now. So it was a little tough. They locked horns. It was um, actually very hard for, for a while. Now we're collaborating. The lab here is doing great work, and it's all fine. But that's kind of the yin-yang of you know, bringing great, passionate people together and building a company is that you've got to also be a psychologist um, and, uh, um, and a therapist sometime as well. Um, so reasonable financing. $6 million at a $4 million pre-money, right? So that means the value of the company is $10 million. So very reasonable. It was early science, no intellectual property issued. Um, we had to hire, build a lab, do all the discovery work. $10 million valuation sounded about right. Okay, so that's reasonable financing. Um, 
very quickly we got the labs up and running. We hired a lot of scientists from Genentech, which was a good sign because they're working on antibody therapeutics in the cancer field. And um, we got a call from Mart Levinson who said, oh, I heard about this and you're stealing all my scientists. Can I talk to you? And we said, no, we're not ready. But we knew we had a good idea. And then we actually had um, a venture capital firm who knew the CEO preemptively come in and say, I'll, I want to participate in a Series B round of financing. And we didn't really need more money, we didn't think, at the beginning. But then um, with a lot of thought around how to put the company together, um, it turns out that the target and the idea that we were working on for cancer was also relevant for uh, fibrotic disease, fibrosis, liver fibrosis, lung fibrosis, many other diseases. And so the market opportunity and the business opportunity got much larger. And so we, rational, we, we put um, a revised business plan together and said taking additional money would actually help advance the program and the company further. So we actually did a very early Series B and knock on wood, we may not to need to raise more money because we have enough money and things are, are moving along nicely. So that's um, the story of a startup and kind of, you know, some of the ups and downs. And this is, we've done this over and over again, and it works. And it is, you know, I, hopefully if you go back to the five key elements for success, all five of them had to be in place to make this work. Um, so, and the other part of this, I would say, is again the ecosystem. It's remarkable. We talked about the lawyer here um, who was willing to work for free. We talked about ability to get a CEO, recruit scientists from Genentech. The technology transfer office at Stanford does a lot of startup companies. It's pretty straightforward to go in and talk to them and get help on you know, what the terms are. We had our friend in Israel who went and negotiated for us. A lot of different pieces came together and made this possible. And then well, the other thing is lab space. So, you know, you think about where you can start a company. When I was down in Southern California and we were talking about what to do there, the county has very se severe restrictions on research space and chemicals that you can use. And you could never do this in um, many, many places in the um, LA County area. So that's the other part that again is quite unique and allowed this to work. Okay, so let's just jump up back up to 30,000 feet for a minute and um, talk about kind of what's happening in the venture capital field. I'll talk about some areas of interest and then we'll stop and um, let me address some of the questions because you had some great questions that'll be interesting to talk about. So um, this is uh, 2007 data um, looking at the mix of money um, it, that venture capital has invested. So a lot of money, almost $30 billion were invested last year. And you can see the mix. Green tech is growing a lot. Um, geographical mix, this is what we were talking about, ecosystem. It's really straightforward, right? Most of this is going on in California. And then um, the next big state is uh, Massachusetts. Um, so this, these are the set of initiatives that we work on at Kleiner per Perkins. And as I mentioned to you, we don't go lab crawling mindlessly, you know, without knowing what we're doing. We have a set of ideas 
and things that we're interested in in the various sectors. And so, um, you know, I don't have to go through all of this. Things to highlight, uh, the iPhone came out, big phenomenon, huge application opportunity for our information technology group. Um, we, did a, we have a strategic relationship with Apple that basically we're taking um, $100 million and we're putting it towards new applications for the iPhone. We've received over 3,000 business plans. And that was announced at the beginning of the year. So it just gives you a sense for, again, you got to pick the spots. And, um, you know, a number of my partners, John Doerr and Brooke Byers and Ray Lane and others, they, they're just, I don't quite know how they do it, but they, they can predict the future um, in a way that I've never seen before. Uh, green tech, I'll, I'll show you a slide on that in a moment. Life sciences, um, medical devices, therapeutics, personalized medicine, molecular diagnostics is, a, is an area that um, Brooke Byers actually started. I mean, he really thought about where's medicine going, what's needed to give better medical care. Somebody asked about cost. Um, how do we get healthcare costs down? Right drug or right therapy to the right patient at the right time. That's one clear way we're gonna do it. We can't continue to have medicines that work in you know, 30% of the population that receives them, and that's literally what some of these drugs do, and then everybody else is getting it, but we're spending a fortune, or spend 90% of our dollars in the last 10 years of life, right? We've gotta start moving medicine back and earlier into preventive care, and being able to predict and diagnose um, what patients are at risk for. That's a key area. Pandemic preparedness and biodefense, two years ago, we raised a special fund, $200 million, that's dedicated to technology and um, opportunities for emerging infectious diseases. Why is that important? Um, a couple of years ago, there was a huge threat every day you read in the paper about bird flu, right, or pandemic influenza. That triggered us to look at a space and look at this area and basically say, well, you know, is this going to be a problem and can innovation help? And we were amazed at the gaps that we found, huge innovation gaps. And so we pulled together our resources. We got our limited partners to invest $200 million. And uh, we've now invested in 10 companies. And um, we think we're making a big impact in preparing the nation for the next big emerging infectious disease. And then we have a global initiative in China and India. And green tech, um, you know, you all asked about it. And um, one of the, uh, <clears throat> the things that's happening here is so obvious, right? I mean, it's um, frightening to see, to listen to the news, you know, cyclones, major earthquakes, tornadoes. I mean, global warming is here. It's not coming, it's here. Um, there are huge market needs and dynamics that are driving this market. The solar market compound annual growth rate is over 46%. There's enormous need in um, you know, wind and new battery technology, new cars. Uh, you name it, we need to get ahead of it. Um, you know about the oil prices. I mean, when, when uh, John Doerr and Ray Lane started this seven years ago, Kleiner has been working on this for seven years um, because we anticipated, saw it coming. There was a, you know, when you have a $6 trillion market, it's kind of something you should pay attention to. 
And, um, and we've started now over, we've made over 40 investments. The number is probably closer to 50 or 60 now. So um, we have a huge commitment to this area, a focused effort. We now have a focused fund for green growth, which are enterprises that are focused, they're later stage enterprises, not startup in green technology. Um, so it's a really important area for us. Um, so here's a summary, and then we'll, we'll uh, stop and, and just have a discussion. So we talked about the ecosystem. Um, one of the major things to think about is everybody asks, well, how do I do this? So the case study, part of what I tried to illustrate to you is it's okay if you're kind of like me, you know, technical kind of person and um, science-focused and don't have experience, uh, sorry, business experience. I do now after 20 years, but, you know, when I started, I didn't in, in industry. And so if you don't have the expertise, find somebody who does. And it's okay, and there's enough people around that you can find people to collaborate with. And I think um, a lot of people underestimate that. We talked about IP and business needs, and the bottom line is this really is fun. I mean, it's hard, hard work. But um, I would say, you know, for me, watching the entrepreneurs working and starting companies, it's probably the most fun I've ever had. So it's really a great area. Um, and then uh, last thing, this, I just like this. Um, we talked about what it takes to succeed. And, um, you know, if you just read through this list uh, that was written by Ralph Waldo Emerson, it's pretty cool. And the bottom line is just find something that you're interested in and try and make a difference. It doesn't matter really what it is, just touch somebody or something that's gonna have an impact. And that's what entrepreneurship is really all about. So let me stop there, see if you have questions, and then um, I didn't, we can cover a lot of things on boards and startups and all of that, um, but let me let you ask any questions about this part of the presentation. Yeah. How much usually the founder is involved in the company itself, uh, both from the technological perspective of it as well as the business administration? So it varies tremendously. Um, sometimes founders are the startup CEOs, and sometimes they take the company you know, pretty far, although usually it's hard to be a startup CEO and then take a company public. It's just different skill sets that are needed. Um, sometimes founders sit on the board. Um, occasionally they're not very involved at all or they're involved for the first year and then you know, they let the professionals take over. Um, it's, it really uh, varies and, and it's very much dependent on what the founder wants to do and what they're you know, trained to do. Yeah, question back there. Uh, when John Mello was here last week, one of the things he talked about was they were able to turn around molecules in about six weeks. Mm -hmm. And biotech itself is almost a seven to ten year span. Right? Can you just contrast those two? And also the investment, I think, in biotech ten, tends to be in the hundreds of millions in, in some cases. Could you just... Uh, yeah. So, so what's interesting for me, one of you asked the question about um, the interplay between biotech and green tech and kind of the crossover. So... For me, the most interesting observation is how much green tech looks like biotech. 
Um, just yesterday, we were uh, reviewing a company that's modifying with an enzyme um, corn to basically be able to produce um, ethanol and, you know, probably butanol and other similar to, little, a little bit different, but similar idea to um, John Mello and what he's doing. And what was remarkable is I looked at it and it was so, it was easy for me. It was science, technology. The, the risk on the technology side is very, is very similar. John Mello's risk is scale up and, um, and uh, production costs. And uh, being able to make manufacturing facilities, and whether they're new or you have or you want to um, a- adapt a current technology um, manufacturing facility and make it into an, into another one, and then dollar wise, it's not that different. I mean, you know, it will cost for the green tech investments in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, some can get out quicker, depending on what it is. But in the biofuels area, it's, it's you know, seven years. Um, on the spectrum, the way to think about it is um, there's uh, companies that work on um, consumer products and information technology for healthcare, least capital intensive and shortest time to market, biotech drugs, most capital intensive, long, longest time, green tech, very similar time frame for biofuels. Um, cars, uh, solar is probably around like a device company, you know, five years or so to market. Yeah? Question. In emerging markets like in China, yeah. um, there's opportunities for, there's not a lot of infrastructure for things like energy. And I'm wondering um, how, how you guys would approach another country like that. And if you would use a VC firm there to help you explore opportunities and green tech. Yeah, great, great question. So let me tell you what we've done. Oh, sure, of course. Um, So the question is in the emerging markets, so China, how would we go about investing? Would we um, collaborate with VCs there? And, you know, how would we basically advance the technology? Um, So let me give you an example of what we've done in China and what we've done in India. And they're very different, and we took different approaches for reasons of... um, really need in trying to understand the market. So um, China, we determined, was very important to have people who understood the local environment on the ground. It's very complicated. It is a, an entrepreneurial environment in the major cities, right? Not in the provinces. It's um, growing faster than you can imagine. People are moving back to China who are trained here in the United States or have worked in the United States. Culturally, night and day. You cannot take Western norms and bring it to China and succeed. Um, Financially, different drivers. The stock market is different. For example, you cannot go public on the Shanghai Exchange with a biotech company unless you have revenue. And that would just totally fail right here in the US. You know, NASDAQ, how many companies have revenue? Not many Um, in the biotech, (laughs) Um, or at least profitable. Um, so, so very different. And then it's a communist country. So the government controls things. I mean, we heard stories when we went over there about businesses where if you were becoming too successful and too independent, the government would basically just shut down all your electricity, your water, your staff. I mean, you're done. You're out of business. So it's impossible for us to do that from afar. So what we did is we found the best investment team in China, 
and they are KPCB China now. We raised a separate fund, so we have $360 million that we're investing there, and they are all Chinese. They are local entrepreneurs. They understand the environment, and the big push pill um, at the beginning was independent. We wanted the Kleiner way, you know, how we do it, kind of what I've described to you, and there was a big um, debate about independence. And so we're now, we have a partner over here who spends a lot of time in China, in China. She is Chinese, grew up there. She spends a lot of time interfacing. India, we took a totally different approach. Um, we have an entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, who has been part of the Kleiner family, so to speak, for many years. And he knew the Indian market. And we have a partner who focuses on India. And so we didn't put a team in place there. And um, we don't have a, a separate fund. So hopefully that's, yeah, no problem. OK, got it. So let's see, which one should I pick? Um, <laughs> uh, what's Al Gore like as a partner? How's that? <laughs> um, he's a great partner. Um, he is with us um, pretty much, I would say, three out of four Mondays uh, for a partner meeting. He invests, um, he, sorry, he reviews all of our green tech investments with us. He's very helpful. He is um, kind of just like us. I mean, he's you know, passionate, works hard, um, available on his BlackBerry 24-7 wherever he is. Um, he has a really good Rolodex. Um, <laughs> so he helps a lot. Um, and he's, he's, you know, he, he's passionate about global warming and making a difference and doing something about it. And that's what he brings to the table more than anything else. And, um, and it's really a pleasure to work with him. And I don't know if any of you watched the HBO program Recount. I guess you're taking finals. You probably didn't. But I was depressed <laughs> afterwards. So um, he was, uh, and so he's, he's um, a great partner and, again, is part of the process of helping us evaluate great uh, green technology and moving those forward. So thank you so much for your attention. It was um, a pleasure being here today. Thank you.